You're listening to Sunny Side Up, a bite-sized podcast that brings you real-world insights that help go-to-market professionals evolve and stay up-to-date on the latest trends. Join us as we share best practices and proven techniques from industry experts and practitioners. Today's episode is made possible by Demand Matrix. Demand Matrix helps you complete your data stack with technographic, intent, and revenue potential data to help you accelerate revenue. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Sunny Side Up. I'm your host, Asher Matthew, and I'm super excited today to have Leslie Allure with us to talk about a number of different topics, but specifically Precision Marketing 101. So, Leslie, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Asher. I'm delighted to be here. Fantastic. Well, Leslie, before we get into it, can you please help our audience know who you are and how you got to where you are? Sure, absolutely. So I am currently the Global Vice President of Growth Marketing at Avanti. I've been with Avanti for a little over seven months, and it's been a wild ride. It's been super cool, super fun. And, um, you know, I was a very, very lucky in my career. I started my journey in marketing operations pretty much before marketing operations was a thing. It was kind of accidental. I went to engineering school. I'm a very organized systems type thinker. And I kind of caught the marketing wave at the time when technology was really starting to blow up. And they needed marketers who wanted to be technologists. And so it was a perfect fit for me. And I grew my career through learning the operations side and then being super fascinated about how you can leverage tools and techniques and strategies to drive revenue. And I got really passionate about, honestly, just seeing the impact of what I was doing. And and that's what's motivated me and driven me through my entire career. Fantastic. And can you write code? Actually, I can, um, although it's been it's been many years since I've done so, and it definitely was not my strongest skill in engineering. Well, in that case, you and I are the exact same people, right? I went to school for computer science. I was basic an engineer by trade, and then and then I just realized that the bridging between technology and engineering and customer use cases was far, far, far more interesting than just writing code in front of a machine for eight hours a day. And that's what brought me to here. So it sounds like you had a very similar path. Exactly. I think maybe you and I are a little bit too social for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there, there's definitely that. There is definitely, definitely, definitely that. All right. Let's dive into the topic. And for the folks that are listening, this podcast is specifically designed to help leaders become super leaders. And so the folks that we bring on the show are talking about concepts that they've gone through and we break down topics and then we talk about the experiences that they have so that they can get the lessons learned. And at the end of the podcast, we actually talk about actionable things that you can take away and apply them. And if you're not going to apply them, at least you understand the concepts so that when you're speaking with them about those concepts to your teams, you can inform them about other people's experiences and those become anecdotal stories. And so let's pick the first one. And Desi, we talked about this in the beginning, right? Like there is a difference between B2C versus B2B marketing. And you had some thoughts on the past, the present, and the future of B2B versus B2C marketing. So share with us your thoughts. 
Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, this is something that's talked about a lot and I've heard it talked about in different ways throughout my career. And, you know, what's really fascinating when you look at how people behave as a B2B buyer versus how they behave as a B2C buyer, um, it's different, right? There's this interesting cognitive dissonance in our brains and a different logic that we apply when we are going through a buying journey, making decisions for ourselves and our personal lives as consumers. And the way that we do it in a business setting and um, you know that has led to very different styles of marketing in the past what we're what we we are seeing and we've been seeing this for a while is this convergence of b2b and b2c this dissonance is really starting to narrow and i think the recent pandemic and the fact that everybody's being driven into their home environment they're making their purchases online and in, in the same seat on the same computer and on a business side and a consumer side and so it's like creating this unconscious expectation that their business buying experiences start to feel more like their consumer buying experiences and i really think that this is just going to continue to happen over time where this convergence will just become this one big mush of you know what i experience in my b2c where it's super personalized and super about me and and in in the moment i need it will will be applied to the b2b side so that's the trend right it seems like the buying behavior and and again it's probably true because like people have work from one machine and they were working from their houses and i know for a fact it's true for me because like i had a kid which is super young so i was ordering diapers and also taking sales calls at the same time so of course like i've got amazon open on one side and i've got my my demo machine open on one side and of course you know it takes like two seconds to order diapers these days it's great and so do you think that that people would want to buy large enterprise software the same way well i wouldn't necessarily expect that it would go so far as uh you know to transact although i have to say it also surprised me that people will literally buy things like cars and boats online and i don't know if you guys have looked at boat prices but it's like the price of a house to buy a boat and people are doing it online so maybe the answer is yes maybe that we will get there from a B2B perspective. I think we're a little ways out from that, but I do think that more and more of this, of the, the journey and the experience that is peripheral to the actual purchase moment is expected to be more consumer-like. I, I totally agree with you because if you can buy a Tesla on your phone, then you should actually be able to transact and buy 100 licenses or 200 licenses for your sales teams on the phone as well. But you probably need to go through a free trial. And if the free trial looks similar-ish to, you know, maybe an, an iPhone app download, you know, and then you can go try apps and you can try your, let's call it business apps the same way. I think that is the way, way the world will, will move. And I will second your thought about boats because we love to go fishing in our family and uh, and and every now and then you know the topic of like hey what do boats look like and stuff like that come up and then if you go look around boats are booked out till like next year if you ever wanted to buy one right now so i'm totally totally with you on that now the question becomes about the way and the tools and the thinking that this this thought process that's required to change to be able to think about your business from a B2B perspective, right, in that manner. And that to me is like more of a philosophical journey. And I know there's a behavior pattern, right, because COVID basically forced us to do this, but we're humans. Most people like to go back to the way that they were doing things when a certain crisis is averted. 
thoughts on that? Yeah, I, you know, I think that's a fair point. But the counterpoint to that would be that I think a lot of these expectations and behavioral shifts have been unconscious. Right. And, and later we're going to talk about my favorite books and, and you know, this will, this will all come full circle. But I, I really do think that the the experience that people have in terms of the buying moment presenting itself in their buying moment rather than it being forced upon them probably will never go back to the way it was. So if you think about how it used to be, we used to center these buying decisions, these explorations around big events. There was either customer-driven events, which were like RFPs, or there were industry-driven events, which were literally physical events. And obviously, there's been a bit of a hiatus from that. And we've tried to, to bring those back to life in a virtual setting, but it doesn't feel the same. It doesn't create that same you know, impetus of buying that that it used to. And I really do believe that people are starting to realize that their buying moment is something that they can drive themselves, not something the industry drives. And that's certainly how things work in our consumer lives. I mean, I mean, going back to the theme on boats, are there boat shows out there? Okay, yeah, sure. Do people buy boats at boat shows? Yeah, sure. But most of the purchases that we make are not, well, I'm not, I'm going to wait for there to be a show that comes in my neighborhood to buy, you know, all the diapers. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I'm with you. And I would say, I, I've actually never been to a boat show, but I would love to go to one. You know, we've talked about it a zillion times. We just have to pull the trigger. So anyways, let's move to the transition from now that we understand that, you know, the world is changing. We are in a place where people want to get instant gratification from purchases that they're about to make that they've realized, right? So we're kind of taking the B2C way of marketing and selling into the, uh, into the B2B world. And so you also wanted to share with us a little bit about precision marketing, right? And so how does that fit into all this? Yeah, so precision marketing is something that I would consider to be the next phase, the the layer to add on top of ABM, account-based marketing. And I say that because, you know, account-based marketing got us a long way from a marketing perspective to creating alignment with sellers, right? Salespeople will not survive if they're just running around all over the planet without any focus and you know and, and have no idea where their next payday is coming from they've got to create an account plan and know what companies are their most likely opportunity to bear fruit in x period of time and so account-based marketing has been fantastic to help marketers align our focus to those accounts because that's how a lot of salespeople and teams think right and that's how they've been trained to think in the b2b space for a while but the reality is, is companies, which is what accounts are, don't buy stuff. People yes. do. And uh, no amount of research of, into what is happening in an account is going to uh, is going to make up for your lack of understanding of how people interact and what the people you're interacting with want and need from you. And every person has a different motivator, has a different process. Um, communication style, uh, desires, and frankly, you know, style for going through their their buying experience. So precision marketing is about creating a marketing uh, experience which adjusts to the people within your target accounts, as opposed to just treating all the people within an account as a homogenous group. 
I wholeheartedly agree with you. And I say this because my experience in the world of data is about a year and six months long. One of the most important things I've learned from this experience is the importance of influencers. But the even more important thing that I've learned is the importance of understanding the detractors and understanding them as people versus the company that they're in. Because a lot of people will drink the Kool-Aid, but people always make decisions based on how they're feeling, how they've dealt with, and their needs, right? And so, so as, we, as we've, we've used data over and over and over again through helping customers, the influencers and the detractors, understanding them and knowing them and serving their needs, because there's always a need, right? Like, like you may not be able to serve them today, but you have to go back to the drawing board and come back again and serve them, right? And if you can do that, you will have them, right? As, as customers, because everybody has to earn, earn the right. Now, I understand the, the shift. Is this something that you are seeing being adopted widely amongst your friends in marketing? And I, and I say that because, you know, all of these things start off as, hey, I'd like to do this. And then you go tell your friend and then that person tells your friend. And then now you have a movement. Right. Or is this an industry wide thing that you're seeing? I would say it's not industry wide, although, you know, I do in, participate in a lot of different panels and, and groups where, where this type of thing is something that we're talking about. And I have to give a lot of credit to um, uh, to Scott Vaughn, who is, I think a lot of people listening to this will probably know. He was the CRO at Integrate for quite some time until just recently. And he has done a great job of championing this entire thing. And, you know, what was really funny is I thought I came up with this on my own. And then Scott and I touched base from time to time. And then he use the exact same word precision. I was like, oh my gosh, you've been like reading my mind. But anyway, so I think that I think everybody's going to independently come to this conclusion on their own. Yes. So I do think it will be an industry wide shift, but I don't think it will be a fast and easy one because, and now this is where I'm going to point my finger at, you know, the vendors in the marketing space, you all like lean on ABM, like it is the secret sauce of everything that is, you know, is holy and dear. And, you know, I, I kind of, I get a little bit of chills every time I get an email where there's the words ABM. Um, and, you know, I, it's, it's almost like a, a dirty word in my mind at this point, because it is kind of used to explain everything and therefore it means nothing. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's kind of my, my but, little... But I think do you think it's a sign of maturity of where we're at, right? Because like before this, I had lunch with somebody and and they were telling me about how difficult it was to help people understand the concept of ABM. And then early in the week, I was in a briefing and and the, the, the folks that were giving the briefing were saying like, you know, a lot of people still do it wrong, right? But the ones that are doing it correctly are actually seeing a lot of benefit. So do you think that we are kind of the, after the early adopter, we're like early laggards placed in ABM. And then there are some people that may just never come to the conclusion because they're just going to keep on doing leveraging marketing automation to just send a bunch of emails to a bunch of leads uh, that they probably found in the yellow yellow pages. But the folks that are sophisticated like you have realized this and they're moving towards this trend. If you had asked me this question two years ago, I would have said no. And the reason is, is because all ABM was, was, or is, was, was a new hashtag for what is truly B2B marketing. So my perspective then and still somewhat is today is that 
account-based marketing is B2B marketing. And if you were doing B2B marketing correctly in the first place, then you would have been on that bandwagon and you didn't need the term ABM to, to make it sound like it was a smart strategy. I think I've evolved my view on that to say that what ABM has done is it ha has helped to create a category that has like sub strategies within it so that you can understand different types of account-based marketing, right? So, you know, I actually, as recently as last week was, was giving a presentation to our ELT as part of our quarterly business review. And I, I literally took our, our target audience segmentation strategy and I overlaid it with the ITSMA ABM pyramid to say, look, when you're looking at segments in the mid-market space, we're talking about programmatic ABM. It's high scale, you know, you're touching a lot of people, but it is still about the people. And we need to create digital experiences that are reactive and artificially intelligent driven to, to optimize that journey uh, for those people and move them through as, as quickly as possible. For when you move up into the enterprise space, it starts to align itself to more of the ABM light, I think they call it today. And that is really about one to few accounts. And that is about grouping those things. And so to just make it super practical for people, I'll tell you exactly what I'm doing. And I'm, I'm in a, you know, knee deep in a project right now to do this. And that is to reevaluate, look at our target accounts for each of our sales teams by business unit and region and append some key firmographic data, not, not everything we can possibly find, but dig up some key firmographic attributes that will allow us to map those accounts to a key play. Those plays, sales plays are based upon common pain points that we've created solutions and, you know, around. And then what we're doing is we're literally calculating the revenue potential of each sales play based upon how many and which accounts have been mapped to it. And we're developing marketing strategies that are right sized based upon the revenue potential of those plays. And then we're going to go execute them against those accounts. So I guess that brings it full circle back to the whole original principle of ABM, which, again, is something really good B2B companies should have been doing all along. I would say next to Scott Wand, you may just be my favorite person because of how eloquently you just shared that. Because I've been working with this company called Fujitsu, right, and uh, for about a year and a, a year or so, right, and 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 for a company that has like thirty five thousand employees or more, right, it's very hard to make that data driven journey. And so, and they have a fantastic, fantastic new CMO that came in. I mean, it's just phenomenal. But to see this change that even you're talking about, and I saw it because we were on a call every single week at about 11 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, because that's when people in Japan and, and, and EMEA were on, I could see the pain. And it's a painful process. And if you're going to go through this, right, you just have to be ready to understand that the mass, mass, mass prioritization is the name of, name of the game, but you have to develop the muscle and the muscle really is developed around core competencies of your business. And I feel like so many people forget that because the keywords that you choose to run all your marketing from need to match the core competencies that your business is actually going to serve in the marketplace. And there's a direct relationship with, with that. But that was my learning. Would you agree? I would absolutely agree. And I would take it one step further and say, when you use the keywords that align to your core competencies, they better be the keywords that people recognize and are using in the industry. Don't try yes. making up your own keywords. That's never yes. going to work. Yes, 100%. I mean, so I will say that if living in the world of ABM, and um, I got to connect you with Jessica Davis. She was the lady who first introduced ABM to me. And she would just say, hey, 
Asher, we were doing ABM in the 80s. It's not new. We were just doing it, exactly. right? And, and they're like, it's just a new way of, of looking at things. I'm like, totally great, Jessica. That's awesome. And Jessica and I used to talk about like all these like partners who used to come to us and give us their customer list, and we had to like activate them, which again went into prioritization, the same process, right? And so and the reason I share that is because these core principles can be used in all the different types of marketing. It's not just uh, demand gen or lead gen or however you may, may des- describe it. Okay, fantastic. So so now we've, we've got this, this concept and that there's these journeys that people are in. And so at scale, right, it, there must be some lessons that you have learned or some key takeaways that you can share because doing this as a pilot project or as an incubation effort is totally fine. There are ways that you can get around it. But to do this at scale, there must be some things that are like golden rules to live by. So I would love for you to advise the crew or maybe the 7,000 VPs that listen to this thing with some key takeaways. Sure. So the key to scale, no surprise, is data and strategy alignment. So what you need to do is you need to understand strategically where are you going to focus your energies, your key narratives and value propositions, and don't try to do too many at once. Understand what are the attributes of both the accounts, the companies, and the people as a combination that these value propositions will resonate with, and then use data science to marry those things together. And then there are a multitude of channels. I mean, the good thing about the ABM wave is that there's tons and tons and tons of channels out there. I mean, you pretty much, no no marketing tech vendor can survive today if they don't do some level of account-based marketing enablement. So if you've got the data, you know these are the accounts, these are the attributes of the, of the people and the companies. These are the types of behavioral indicators that indicate that somebody could be right for this value proposition. There's so many opportunities to marry that. thing I would say is you can't just set it and forget it. You can't just like chuck it over the fence to a vendor and let it ride and then see what happens on the other end without constantly monitoring it because ABM can take a long time to bear fruit if you think about the whole, the full lead to sales cycle, if you're thinking about it in a traditional sense. And so um, you can't wait for that. You've got to be watching and seeing, are people interacting? Are we seeing the early leading indicators? Okay, if we're seeing that, are those leading indicators leading to the next thing we expect to happen, which, you know, it's a tactical, practical example. If you're seeing that all of a sudden your campaign engagement is rising, your lead creation is rising, even your marketing qualification leads are rising, but somehow your opportunities and pipeline is not, you've got to break down somewhere and you've got to go triage what that is. And you have to be monitoring and doing that constantly, um, which is a very painful, but very necessary thing. Super awesome insight that you shared. As you were saying this, one of the lessons that I've learned is as an executive, you have to explain the why. And if you don't know the answer, don't say it. Just say, I'll get you the data and then we'll have a data-driven discussion, right? But you have to know the why. You also have to make decisions, but that's like we've covered this multiple times in this in, in this uh, in the, in this podcast. But the explanation of the why something is happening or isn't happening, both are required from you as an, as an executive. And as you were saying that, like I just had flashbacks and I know there's thousands of younger executives in uh, listening to this podcast and this t- this this habit or this muscle needs to be built and it's a very intentional one that you have to build because when the results are good people say well if it's working 
why why do we care let it let it work right and that's actually not as the, when you start saying that you then start taking your eye off the ball and then you think that automation means set it and forget it and that's to your earlier point you cannot set it and forget it because at any given point in time there are macro trends that are affecting your business or can affect your business and so if things are going well and then start going extremely well people want to know why so that they have comfort and when they have comfort that's how trust is enabled when trust is enabled your executive teams get tighter and when executive teams that get tighter you have a, an amazing executive experience any thoughts on that I, I couldn't agree more. And I would even add on that you want your exe- entire executive team to understand, at least at a high level, the strategy and the why behind the strategy first. So that way, when you stand up and say, show the results, they understand what they're expecting to see and why we're expecting to see it. And, you know, I've had this, I've had moments in my career, including recently where, you know, I've stood up in front of a, a ELT in May and I said, okay, All the leading indicators show that things are going in the right direction, but we're not seeing these conversions, these convert into actual tangible pipeline for the sellers, and we don't know why. So here's what I'm going to do about it, because here's what I expected to see, and I'm not and I'm seeing this, but I'm not seeing that. Here's exactly what I'm going to go do about it. And then in the time between that meeting and the next QBR, I I've delivered updates to say, here's the progress we're making towards evaluating this. So that when I showed up to the next QBR, I said, Here's what we uncovered. Here's what we're doing about it. Here's the early impact we're seeing of that. Fortunately, it was good. And by the way, now that we've got our arms around this, here's the next step in our strategy and the next thing we're going to do and why we're doing it. And and I think it's super important that marketers feel confident standing up in front of their leadership team and explaining, not defending, but explaining, this is what I'm going to go do. This is what you should expect to see from me. So that way, when you are presenting results, whether good or bad, they understood what all came from. Fantastic. So let's talk about another point. And I'm going to tie another point to it because I want to drive a point home, but I would love your learnings from this, right? Not letting the vendor just work in an automated fashion and that thought the thought of working with data companies and i'll say why why i'm saying this because there's a big big learning of mine that i want to share with the world but i want you to get your thoughts first yeah here's the thing about data it is transitory right it changes all the time what is good data today could be crap data in three months from now and actually that is becoming more and more true as we're seeing um so much change in the industry i'm sure by now everybody has has heard and possibly even experienced you know that there's lots of people changing jobs more people than ever which means that the average database attrition has really, really increased. And and that is a perpetual challenge for marketers, for data vendors. So um, you you can't rest on your laurels and assume that the data that you that you had is still good. So you have to be constantly monitoring that and the quality of it. You add on this layer of privacy considerations and the fact that, you know, we are the stewards of data that we are um, being we're, we're, it's on loan to us is kind of the best way to think about data, right? Yes. Somebody is loaning us the right to use their information as long as we don't abuse it and they have every right to take it away. And I don't think that marketers are used to thinking about people's data that way. Um, you know, I think GDPR might might be one of the best things that ever happened to marketing because it's forced us to do better marketing. But it's something that you have to take ownership of. And by the way, I personally don't believe that you can just 
trust that your vendors are doing all the right things without holding them accountable regularly. And that point, a slightly more, I would say, encouragingly way for it is be partners with your data vendors. And I'll tell you this, like I went through COVID helping build a data company and the people that were partners of mine, I understood them and they understood what I was trying to do. And then we worked on things. And the reason is because if you buy an application today, you're going to extract the value of that application tomorrow because the features are all on, the selectors are all on, you can go and do it. When you buy data, you're not going to be able to see the full value of that data for at least three months if you have all your stuff together, right? And so because of that, I would say a lot of executives need to spend time and understand the people who are behind the data vendors and then go and select the data vendors. But even in that scenario, do not just pick a data vendor and run with it. Think about the attributes to your earlier point. I'm so glad you said that because just having 130 attributes of an account isn't necessarily going to help you. You need the seven that are important that match to your sales plays, that match to your core competencies. And I feel like like you and I should do a workshop on this. I'm, I'm proud, uh, <laughs> for, for our editors who are listening to Make a Note, we're going to do a workshop on this at some point in time. But the, 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 the thought process will just help you understand how to lay the foundation to scale. And then you can move to the creative side, which is to me, like once you have this stuff working and people have an idea of where they're headed, then they can think about how to head there. And when and you can spend time on creative and you can spend time on brand tone and all this other amazing stuff. And, and when all of this stuff comes alive, then you'll see people's reaction would be that they will take your marketing personally, as in they will feel glad that they associated themselves with you. That's what's at stake. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And um, for, you know, those people, those, those you know, vendors that I work with, I absolutely consider them partners. And by the way, the, the only vendors that really survive in, in my world are those who behave as, you know, partners rather than vendors and take the time to uh, take the time to understand our strategy and what we're trying to do. And uh, I know that you guys had Franny on your podcast before. Yes. And, you know, Franny's one of those people that is such a great partner. I'll, I'll tell you guys, I'll tell you a quick story. Yep. Fresh. So, you know, one of the things that we're focusing on is cross-selling. We do a lot of acquisitions. And so, you know, we're constantly acquiring new com- new customers through those acquisitions. And we look at for opportunities to enhance what we do with them with some of the newer solutions as we bring them in. And so we've been we've been really trying to figure out what is the best approach, the most customer-centric approach to, to cross-selling. And then Yesterday, actually, me and a woman who works for me, we got an email from Franny and it like just asked three really direct questions. Two of them were very personal and one of them was like our opinion about events. And really her whole the whole objective of the third question was to open up the door to have that cross selling conversation because of their crew. Uh, um, acquisition. And what was so funny is that I took the email and I was like, well, this is brilliant. And I forwarded to a couple of my coworkers and I was like, what a great cross-selling email. We should be doing something like this. And then the woman who works for me who had already responded to it and was like happily answering all her questions. She's like, oh, wow, I feel really stupid. I thought we were just friends and she was just asking me my opinion on things. I didn't even realize I was being sold to. And that is like, that's how you need to get personal with your partners and your vendors. 100%. And I'll also put this out there because I feel like it's important. Everybody has to buy data. Everybody has to buy apps. 
everybody is going to go be, be consulted, right? But the way that you do it has to be human. It has to be meaningful. And because you have to play the long game, there's got to be the, we are going to do this this year. And if timing doesn't work out, no problem. We're going to come back to it. But it's not that things are, things are done. And it, it, I'll, I'll share this personally. It took me a very long time to understand this myself. But then I'll, there is, again, I'll speak with like executives from India or from Singapore or Japan, you know, and, and they're like work, 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 work. And then, you know, we got to get results, 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 results. But if you are building something meaningful, it is going to take time and then nurture the relationship. And Franny was awesome, by the way, you know, she also canceled on me twice. I'm just put that out there, but she's a friend, so I can say that. But then, then we, we did we did the podcast and, it, and, it, and it, was, it was totally, totally fantastic. And she's high energy, which is what I love. So let's talk a little bit about data stewardship, because this is an important topic. It was important before, but it is even more important right now because we're coming out of COVID, right? And, and we're going to and the tendency is going to be, let's just buy all the data in the world and blast. And we're going to, some, some of us are just going to go back to the spray and pray, right? And so share with us your lessons of data stewardship. Well, you know, I should, I should, uh, I think there needs to be a public service announcement that just explains that I am and have always been extraordinarily conservative when it comes to the treatment of people's data. This predated Castle, which I think came out in 2014 and GDPR and all those things. You know, I really genuinely believe that we have to earn the right to have and to use people's data. And it's not because I'm a privacy nut. Like I have I have all of the in-home devices that I, whose names I can't say because they'll all turn on. Like I have no illusions about personal privacy. I just think it's respectful people to, to treat them in a way that sees them as, as people. So if you want somebody to take the time to interact with you, you should take the time to think about what, what's a valuable interaction for them. And that, and I know that that sounds like it's off topic from data stewardship, but I, I see those things as very intimately related. Um, you know, so for me, having high quality data matters. Having data um, that can be used to your point, the attributes that are relevant to the value proposition you have to offer matters, and how you treat and handle people's data and matters. So, you know. I think that I, I actually what I've told my teams in the past is to think about your relationship with somebody you want to communicate with as a line of credit. So if you think about data stewardship, think about how you have a line of credit with with them. And when and just like how credit works, when you do good things, when you have good interactions, it builds up your line of credit and you and you get more of it. You earn more information, right? Data, and you can do more with it. But when you do bad things, it breaks that credit score down. And if your credit score gets too low, you're just going to be cut off. Right. And it's a lot harder to build up a good credit score once it's bad. So that's kind of how I think about that. Well said. But I still feel like it's going to take some time for people to get used to it. And and officially, like this week is one of those weeks where, like, again, we just got this big briefing done, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we're back to the brand is going to be a differentiator. Right. Because if everybody has all the data, everybody has all the insight, everybody has all the tools. To, like, let's say I think the, the average large company has what, 1100 tools or stuff. Right. So even if they had like 70 of the right ones, you still have all. Right. And so so then you're back to the brand is going to be differentiator. And if you didn't, if you weren't methodical about building your brand, I feel like you're going to have a reputation that you may not want. So but that was my conclusion. Right. Your thoughts. 
brand is super, super, super important. You have to have a, a brand that is recognized and has a solid reputation. I will not refute that, but I do not think that brand can its own be a differentiator. Like all things equal just on brand being a differentiator. I think that that's a cop out. I would challenge anybody to take on the challenge of making the customer experience your differentiator. So if you truly have all the same data, the exact same capabilities, you know, all the feature functions, blinky light things are exactly the same, then your differentiator is going to be the customer experience, how your interface works, how re responsive you are to customers and issues, how fun you are to work with and, and you yes. know, what kind of partner you are. Yes. I will edit my definition because to me, when I say brand, it actually includes all those elements in it because if I recognized you, but when I first connected with you, you were great. And the second time I connected with you, you're like, you're not so great. And the third time you're not so great, like that brand is gone, right? And I'm not saying you just specifically, but I'm just saying like a, a brand, right? Like if, if Apple all of a sudden said, guys, you can only download five apps. And they're gonna be like, wait, I thought you stood for freedom and creativity and like this stuff. And now you're only limiting me to five apps. Like, this is not a great customer experience. I don't want to be associated. Or I'll give you an even an even better example. This is what my wife told me, right? And she's like, hey, you know, like, we used to get everything from Amazon uh, on any day that we wanted, right? Now they're saying, hey, if you want everything for free, you have to pick a day, right? And even subtle things like that, right? Like, change the experience. Right? But, but it's all rooted in customer experience. So you just turn it right, right? But then if you... Combine them, they kind of fit in that brand bucket, right? Because the, the non-brand bucket is all about like demand gen creativity and stuff like that. What do you think? I think that's a very interesting and very telling of you that you associate experience with brand. I would say that I'm not sure that that's true of all people. I think some people think about how people vote for a second. Let's just take it out yes. of the, the customer space for or the brand space for a second. Oftentimes, people who don't have or take the time to educate themselves on a candidate, they will vote for who? the name they recognize. Yes. And that can also be true when people make purchase decisions, right? If yes. you're, if all things are equal, you're probably gonna pick based upon price. And if price is basically yes. the same, then you're go, gonna go with the brand you recognize, whether you have an experience with that brand or not. So yes. that's kind of why I say, you know, the true differentiator, what matters more than anything else is that yes. customer experience. Yeah, 100%. I mean, we're both technologists and engineers, right? And so we're like, hey, plus one, plus one, plus one, plus one actually equals five. But if I didn't have the one, I'm not going to associate with the five. So great. Let's shift gears to a resource. And we always ask for super experienced executives like yourself to share a resource, whether it's a book, a blog, a website, a email list, right? Is there something that you would be would like to share with us so that the 7,000 executives that listen to this podcast can make this take something of actionable away from it? Yes, I'm actually going to give you two, and they are both books. And by the way, both of them um, can be read or audiobooks, but I would definitely recommend one you actually need the actual, like, you need to read it. Um, so the first one is Predictably Irrational. It's a book about behavioral economics by Dan Ariely. And you heard me earlier speaking about this concept of cognitive dissonance and how people's rational decision making in B2B and B2C is different. A lot of that type of concept is covered in this book, Predictably Irrational. I think any leader in any function can learn a lot from understanding behavioral economics because it challenges the fundamental economic theory that people behave rationally when they make purchase decisions. 
right? And, and the reality is we don't. And he's done, conducted many studies that proves that. Super fascinating. And by the way, there are some behaviors displayed that he, that he uncovers in this book that I think that this maybe sounds like a dirty word, but that marketers can really exploit from a marketing perspective. So that's one. And that one you could listen on audiobook. The one that you should get and you should read either physically or on Kindle, but you got to read it, not listen to it, is Blind Spot, The Hidden Biases of Good People. That to me, it's, it's all about implicit bias. And it's a, I just feel super passionately that anybody in a leadership role needs to understand the concept of implicit bias. But the other reason I say this is because as marketers, there's a lot of really juicy information in here about how cognitive heuristics work. And again, maybe kind of not a nice word, but there's a lot of cognitive heuristics that we can exploit as marketers. So check those two out. Fantastic. So next part of this, is where we get to give forward, right? And so are there two or three other folks in go-to-market or data science that you would recommend we bring on to the show so they can educate us the same way that you're educating us, and this way a whole generation of people get to be better? Yes. So he doesn't know that I'm giving you his name, but I'm going to give you Troy Arias. He leads the data science at Iron Mountain. And this guy has a super fascinating background. He's former military. And then he actually ran, was a general manager of an Iron Mountain facility. So he's got really great business acumen. And then he changed his entire career and went back and got a, a degree in data science and is super, super, super smart guy with numbers. And, you know, I relied and I learned from him and I learned a lot from him over the years on how to use the power of data. The other person that I would recommend to you is a guy named Pete Lorenko. He just moved over to Alice, who is, you know, friends of ours in the, in the marketing tech space, um, newly leading their demand gen team. And then I'll give you one more. And this guy, his name is Michael Mills. And he is also an Avantian. He is the SVP of revenue enablement and customer success. And this guy just has an amazing, amazing perspective because he's been in the industry for so long in tech. And, um, you know, he's done sales and sales enablement and revenue. So he really, he gets all facets. Fantastic. Well, as we close, I'm sure there's going to be some people out there that would want to connect with you and ask a question. What would be the best way for them to connect with you? Not a super original answer, but LinkedIn. That is the best way to find me and to reach me. Um, and by the way, I hope you guys do because I love connecting with other marketers. Fantastic. I will also say, if you're going to reach out to Leslie, and this is true for every executive, and I say this periodically on this podcast, please, please, please be specific because everybody wants to help. Like I have yet, and I, we've done, and I'll say this, like we've done 170 podcasts. I think I've done 90 of them myself. I have yet to come across somebody that has said, no, Asher, I'm not going to talk to you. But every time somebody has never responded to me, it's because I was super vague in my ask, and then they just couldn't help me. And then later on when I met them, they said, oh, wait, like I got your note, I just didn't know what to do with it. And so if you're going to reach out to Leslie, please be specific, because she has 30 seconds or less to scan through the first three sentences. If they're interesting, she's, she can actually uh, respond to them. I'm, and I'm just taking Leslie as an example, but all the executives that we had, we had Sandy Carter on, on, the, on the show. She She's one of the the top execs at Amazon, same thing happened over there. So definitely be respectful of the executive's time. And I'm sure you're going to get a lot of value out of that. But Leslie, thank you so much. I was looking forward to this uh, conversation and you did not disappoint. So this is great. <laughs> I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation. From time to time, we bring executives back so to get an update on like what they thought, 
that when we spoke with them about a certain topic and that has the topic or things around the industry change. So we hopefully uh, look forward to having you back on the show. But thank you so much and best of luck on your journey. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Sunny Side Up. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review us and share these insights with your peers. 